0: listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, Bethelbible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Father, I want to come before you and Lord, I'm humbled to be able to stand before you to open your word for us today. Lord, thank you that you have inspired it, you have protected it, and preserved it for all these years that we could have it before us today. Lord, I pray you would use these words. Uh, We're only covering a couple of verses, but Lord, you would use them in our lives this morning, Uh, that you would convict us, that you would open up our eyes to see the truth. You would encourage us through it this morning. Lord, we need your spirit to teach us, so would you do that even now as we go to your word, guide us through it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So in 1483, in uh, Eisleben, Germany, was a man, a young baby, uh, was born. There, he had no idea how his life was going to impact even us today. This young boy was born to a man named Hans and a woman named Marth, Margaret. His dad was a, uh, a, a coal miner, um, he did well, he saved up, and he was able to buy some mines to then send his son to study Latin in Mansfield, Germany. His dad had plans for him. He wanted him to grow up to be a lawyer, an attorney, and it all laid out for his son. He's kind of known for two major things. He's known for a thing called the 95 Theses and even being one of the fathers of the Protestant Reformation. In fact, what we celebrate and who we are as a church is largely because of how God used this man that you know as Martin Luther. Martin Luther's life was categorized by about four major crises that he went through. And it's interesting that they go on a five-year cycle for this man. The first one happened in 1505, where Martin Luther is traveling back from out of town home, and a storm blows in. And as the story goes, lightning strikes really close to where he is, enough to knock him off of his horse. He's completely startled by this. When he kind of comes to his senses, he cries out, Help me, St. Anne. I will become a monk. In fact, just a few weeks after that experience, he comes good on that promise to very much the dissatisfaction of his father. He tells his father he is not going to become an attorney, a lawyer. He's going to become a monk. In fact, he took to being a monk like a duck takes to water. In fact, in his writings, he said, I outmonked all the other monks. I mean, he devoted himself to this task with all that he had. He spent hours studying the scriptures. Uh, even more than the priest would require of him. But there's two things that he noticed studying through scriptures that caused him some great, great trouble. He saw the law of God and how holy and actually unattainable the law of God was. At the same time, he was overwhelmed with a God that is completely just. With God's law and God's justice, these were two things he could not reconcile. A righteous God in all of his law. At the same time, he's a God that is full of justice. And he is in constant turmoil and consumed with his own guilt. In fact, he wrote that, I have been tormented day and night and I can find no relief for my weary soul. Luther Tried all that he could to live up to God's standard. But he was overcome with his lack of being able to do so. With that came an extreme sense of guilt constantly. When he talked of Christ, he saw Christ as this stern judge that was at any moment ready to pour out his wrath on him. And this was the cloud that he lived under. In fact, someone once asked him, if you, he said, If you loved God... He said, You asked me if I love God. Love God. He said, Sometimes I hate Him. Because Martin Luther could not reconcile these two things together. And he tried with everything he could to make himself right with God and to clear his guilty conscience. He tried everything. In fact, he spent hours in his room inflicting pain upon himself, trying to find some relief. It said that he would spend two to three hours in the confessional, confessing the last sins over the 24 hours. Finally, his priest had just had enough, and he's frustrated with Martin, and he says, can you stop coming to me with these simple little sins? Come when you have something worthy of confessing like adultery, for Christ's sake. But that is how he was just consumed, trying everything he could do to remove his guilt. So he continued practicing to be a monk and finally came to complete his ordination. Then five years later, he had his next crisis. In 1510, there were some disagreements among the jurisdictions of monasteries around the area. And so two monks were chosen to go be representatives in Rome. And Luther could not have been more excited. Thrilled to finally be able to go see the Holy Spirit city. Him and his traveling companions set out on foot from Germany all the way to Rome. And as he got closer and closer, he said he, he could feel the excitement welling up in him. And when he finally entered into that holy city, it became one of the biggest disappointments, disappointments of his entire life. As he walked into the city of Rome, he was completely disgusted by the open sinfulness of the priest and the clergy that were there. Not ashamed, in public, flaunting it before everyone. In fact, he was so distraught, he goes to the church. There's a set of steps called the La Scala. These were the actual steps of Pilate's a palace in Jerusalem that Jesus walked and stood upon when he was condemned and sentenced to die. In the 4th century, they brought these steps all the way to Rome. The story goes that Luther got to the bottom of those steps, got down on his hands and knees, climbing every step, reciting the rosary. When he gets to the top, he stands up and he shouts, Who knows if it's true? And he's having a complete crisis of faith. Well, five years later comes his third crisis, and actually becomes a very turning point for luther's life it's often referred to as the tower crisis or the tower experience so he returns to rome and he completes his education and he becomes a professor and he begins teaching through the psalms and then he is beginning teaching through romans that is all about god's law his righteousness and god's justice When he is studying, there's one day where he comes across the commentary and he's reading the writings of St. Augustine. And he comes to verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1. And He said about these two verses, verse 17, he said, I hate this passage. If I could take this verse out of the holy, sacred scriptures, I would erase it with everything that I have. Because he could not understand how a righteous God could also be just. But he's reading in the writings of St. Augustine, and when he did, he said, "It's as if he came for the very first time to understand the gospel." And he said, "When I came to verse 17, and I came to understand it, it was as the gifts of the doors of paradise flung open, and I walked through." And everything changed. So look with me to these two verses we're going to see today. Verses 16 and 17. Paul is going to begin with kind of an interesting statement. In verses 1 through 15, it's all about his introduction. He says, I'm Paul. I'm the one that was an apostle called by God, set apart. I'm always thinking and praying for you. And I can't wait to see you. And then he says this kind of statement that it's almost like there's a conversation that's been going on that we don't know about. And he begins by saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's like there's things that's going on in the background that we're not aware of as readers today. And that's actually kind of what's been happening. There's some people that are saying the reason Paul hasn't come to Rome. I mean, he's been to Jerusalem. He's been to Turkey, places like Lystra and Derby and Iconium. He's been to Asia. He's been to Ephesus and Miletus. He's even been to Greece of places like Thessalonica, Athens and Corinth. But he's not yet come to Rome. So people are beginning to spread a rumor that Paul is ashamed or he is afraid to come all the way to Rome. But think about what has happened in Paul's life so far. He was ignored and feared. By the disciples. He was mobbed in Jerusalem. In Athens, he stands up and he's called stupid and a a simple man. In Lystra, he gets stoned. He's chased out of Thessalonica. His life is in danger in Berea and he has to be smuggled out. And in Philippi, he's beaten with rods. So I'm thinking if Paul is really ashamed if he's fearful, he would have quit a long time ago and moved on to go make tents and make a lot more money and a lot more comfortable life. So of course, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Because what happens, think about it in your own life, if you're ashamed of something, you don't want to share that. You're going to keep that close. If you're ashamed of something, you're going to be hesitant to share it. So Paul is not hesitant or ashamed at all, but then I'm really convicted. Man, how often am I hesitant, fearful, to share the hope that I have? Why are we often, it's real comfortable in these settings or in life groups to talk about the gospel and Jesus Christ and the hope that we have, but why is it so hard with our neighbors or our family members, or that person that you work with or the ones that you're on ball teams or your kids are in class with and all of these other interactions. It's almost as if we live as if we are ashamed of it. So what Paul's going to say next, and I find myself in that camp often too, man, what are they going to think of me? I'm not going to have all the answers. What if they ask me something I don't know? What if they're no longer going to want to speak to us? Well, the reason Paul is not ashamed is what he's about to say It's not because he's so brave and he's so courageous. It's not that he has all the answers. It's not that he uh, can speak so affluently more than anyone else. He says, the reason he is not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's how he says it. For it is the power of God. That Paul is not ashamed or timid about the message or worry because he believes in the power that is behind it. He doesn't have this great sense of self-esteem. He's not full of confidence in himself. He knows he's not the greatest speaker. In fact, he even says that. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed because the message that I'm bringing is accompanied by the very power of the Almighty God. Notice it doesn't say it comes with the power. It says it is the power. So when the gospel is shared, it means God is at work. The God of the universe is at work behind the message to work in the hearts of the people that are going to hear it. Because there is only one message that has a power to change someone's life. And if we truly believe that, how could we ever be hesitant with it? So Paul does not say the gospel brings power, but that it is the power, and it's God's power. Meaning every time the gospel is shared, even this morning, God is at work. So whether it was Peter, or Peter, or Paul, or James, or John, or you, or me, anytime we are bold enough and not ashamed to share the hope of Jesus Christ, it has the power of God behind it. And meaning. Thinking of the power. It's the same power that spoke the world into existence. The power that holds every star and every galaxy in place. The power that brings the sun up every morning. That could bring an entire nation out of bondage. That when it speaks, the seas obey. The lame can walk and the blind can see. The same power that could bring a dead man back to life stands behind the voice that is proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. And so how in the world can I ever be hesitant when it has that kind of power behind it? But notice what this message, the gospel, that has the power of God, notice what it brings. It says, for salvation... To anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I mean the gospel has the power of God behind it, and it is the only thing that can bring salvation. There isn't another message, or ever has been or will build, that the world has that can happen, that can bring the salvation to people. There is no other message in the world that can do that that can save sinners, reconcile them to God, and guarantee them a place in God's kingdom forever. There is only one message, the only message that can do that. And so here's the flow this morning. Paul says, there's a message that I'm not ashamed of. The message is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God, and only the power of God can bring salvation to anyone who believes. But there's a question that Paul's yet to answer. And the question then, how does the gospel actually save someone? So then we get to verse 17 where he will answer it. And this is the verse where Martin Luther, he says, when I finally understood it rightly, it's as if the gates of paradise flung open and I walked through. And it reads this way. For in it, the gospel The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this verse haunted Martin Luther, and it brought him incredible terror. In fact, it should cause us to stop in our tracks and to think about what that would actually be like when God reveals his righteousness. To think about one day God will fully reveal His righteousness should actually frighten us. And the reason is, is because when God finally reveals His righteousness, nothing that is unrighteous will ever be able to stand. It will be completely destroyed. So when God finally reveals His righteousness, meaning His purity, His holiness, In fact, he says he is so righteous and so pure and so holy, there'll be no need for sun in the new heavens and new earth because that is all the light we will ever need. But all sin must be punished. All sin is an attack on God's character, his standard, and God cannot and he will not overlook a single sin. So for there to be justice, sin has to be punished. All unrighteousness must be dealt with. And so Martin Luther believed this. He knew that if God created a law for man to follow, and he did, that when man broke the law, and all of us have, the violation could not just be swept under the rug. The sin could not be overlooked. If God is truly just, sin must be punished. And this is why Martin Luther lived with such a reality of guilt and shame. He could not get past it. And so the question then had to be answered is then how can a holy and righteous God ever forgive sinners and still be holy? We should first see it this way. God's righteousness is is our greatest obstacle. We can't get around it. The fact that God is completely righteous and we are completely unrighteous, that is our biggest problem. Luther knew that God is completely righteous and he was not, and it was before him day and night, and he tried everything he could to fix it. He tried everything he could do to make himself right, to remove God's wrath from him. He tried everything. Because verse 17, notice what it says at the end. The righteous shall live by faith. That's the only way it happens. Only the righteous get to do that. And Luther was overwhelmed with the reality that he was not righteous. Therefore, he felt that he was beyond hope. So if the gospel is the revealing of God's righteousness, on the surface that is not a good thing for people that are unrighteous. So how in the world then can it be good news? How can it be good news when the righteousness of God is our greatest obstacle and our biggest problem? Doesn't it seem like God isn't being fair at all? That He has set a standard that I could never reach? And that is the only way I get acceptance before him. It'd be like me taking my kids and saying, you know what, kids? In order for you to live here, to have free room and board, um, to have all your needs taken care of, then here's what you have to now do. We now have a new standard. There's a new law. You know what? You, uh, You can never tell a lie. You can never want anything that someone else has. On top of that, You can never get angry and hit someone. You can never even have one impure thought. And if you have to do everything I tell you with absolute obedience 100% of the time with the right attitude. And if you can do that, then you're welcomed. And that's exactly what God's law says. Only the righteous will live. That God is demanding something, a righteousness that we can never, ever obtain. And he says, only the righteous will live. And this haunted Martin Luther. But then one day he's reading in St. Augustine's commentary on the book of Romans. And Augustine showed him something, pulled something out about the righteousness, about what it is actually referring to. And when Martin Luther understood this, he said, everything changed. As Augustine pointed out, that the righteousness being referred to is not a righteousness that we could ever achieve. That God demands a righteousness that we do not have and never will. And our only hope, our only hope is that God would give the righteousness that He demands. It has to come from outside us. So the reason that he's not ashamed of the gospel, which the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. The way of the gospel saves believers is that the gospel offers us the righteousness that he and he alone can demand. Meaning, if the standard is God's righteousness, the only way we can obtain it is if God gives it to us. That he offers us his righteousness. He credited it to us what does it say? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And when the penny dropped and Martin Luther understood this, everything changed. So, church, please hear this message this morning because we are completely unrighteous. God revealing his righteousness should truly terrify us. That one day God will completely reveal his righteousness. And it will be poured out as his wrath on anything that is unrighteous. God's righteousness becomes God's wrath to anything that is unrighteous. And that's the truth of the scriptures. But then something happened. Almost 2,000 years ago, God did something. God sent his son as a helpless baby into a completely unrighteous world. For over 30 years, he stood blameless in a sin-soaked world. He stood for truth, and he proclaimed the only message that can change a person's life and eternity. And for that message, he was sentenced to death. And on a Friday morning, he made a long and lonely walk to a mountain. And on that mountain, he was nailed to a cross, and he took all the unrighteousness of the world as if it was his own. And God revealed His righteousness upon His Son in the form of His wrath, upon His very own sinless Son. And then God gave a call to anyone. He said, if you will just believe in my Son, if you will trust in Him, I will provide the righteousness that you need. And when that happens, God's righteousness is no longer his wrath, it becomes his grace. And the only thing that stands in the difference, in the middle, is Jesus Christ. That God's righteousness being revealed will come as wrath, or it will come as grace. And so here's Luther's final crisis. Happened five years later in 1520. It was in a place uh, that's called the Diet of Worms, or the Diet of Worms if you're German. It was a council. This council was put together because of something that Martin Luther did three years earlier. Three years earlier, after Martin had climbed the of La Scala, he goes back to Germany and he continues to teach. In Rome at the time, there was a man named, the Pope was Pope Leo, and Pope Leo was going to remodel St. Peter's Church. In order to do this, he needed to raise money, so they began offering what's called indulgences. You could come and pay alms or money, and when you did that, if you have a loved one that was in purgatory, it could reduce their time or their sentence there. Well, back in Germany, there was a man named Tetzel, and Tetzel then takes us to a whole new level. He begins offering indulgences to rebuild their and remodel their church. But instead of it just reducing a person's time, he was said to abolish all sins. Tetzel then invented a phrase that said, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul in purgatory springs. And so because of this and several other reasons, Martin Luther sat down and he wrote down a list that contained 95 areas of concern he had, known as the 95 Theses. So on October 31st, 1517, he goes to the church of Wittenberg, and he tacks this list, these statements on the door. But what you have to understand is Martin Luther was not trying to lead or start up a revolt to change things. This was really a common practice. The door of the church was like a bulletin board and you could put notices or things you would like to know more about. The priest would then take those, go behind closed doors to discuss them and come out to teach about what was posted on the door. The second reason is this. He wasn't looking to start something. It's because he wrote it in Latin. And Latin was the common language among the scholars, not the ordinary people. That was German. Well, some students are passing by, and they notice this list, and they begin reading it. They take it, and they translate it into German. There happened to be a man that invented an invention called the Gutenberg Press, the printing press. And they begin making copies. And think about this. In 1517, they made copies, and in 14 days, it was said the 95 Thesis was said to be in every village in Germany. Well, copies made it to Rome. The Pope thought, who did, anybody knows about this guy named Martin Luther. It'll pass, people will move on. But people began demanding that Luther be dealt with. So instead of bringing him to Rome, they allowed him to be interrogated in Germany. Two open debates happened there. And during one of these debates, Martin Luther was backed into a corner where he admitted that the Pope was capable of sinning. When word traveled back to Rome in 1520, the Pope condemned him as a heretic and sentenced him to death. So Luther goes into hiding. About a year later, this special council, the Council of Worms, the Diet of Worms was called. And the Pope gave Martin Luther a free pass. They guaranteed his safety to come to Rome. He arrives in Rome under a small covered carriage. He's ushered into the council, and Martin believes he's coming in to to defend or debate his statements. But to his amazement, there was only one question they wanted him to answer. They asked him if he was ready to recant or denounce his writings, knowing that if he did, he would be burned alive at the stake. Now, here's where Hollywood gets it wrong. If you've ever seen any of the Luther movies, that. Kind of puts his fist in the air and he says, I cannot and I will not recant. That's not how it actually goes. He simply bowed his head as far to where his chin touched his chest and he mumbled something no one could hear. He asked him to speak up and he said, May I have 24 hours to think about it. He goes back to his chambers, and for the next 24 hours he begins praying. And it is one of the most beautiful prayers. You will ever read so I made some copies and put them in your bulletins and there's some on the back table I'd invite you to take and read sometime this week during this prayer he says this Lord I am yours and this cause is yours my soul belongs to you give me courage to stand help me be prepared to lay down my life for your truth O oh, God send help Well, the next morning he's brought before the council. I believe the wood is stacked and the stake is ready for him. When asked Luther to give his response, he utters these famous words. Unless I'm convinced by the sacred scriptures and plain conscience, I cannot recant. My conscience is held captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God but by God's design, his plan, as he's been taking away, some friends stage the kidnapping. He's taken to the castle of Wartburg, where he hides out as a knight. Grows a beard, wears the attire in full disguise. But during the next years, he takes that time to translate the Bible into German so that the common people can have the very word of God for themselves. And so when I read Paul and I hear stories in, about Luther, I'm eternally grateful for men and women that were willing to be shamed for the gospel because they were in no way ashamed of it. They believed that the gospel is the only message in the world that has the power to save sinners. It's the only message that can deal with our biggest problem, our complete unrighteousness. And God demands complete and utter righteousness that we don't have. Our only hope is that God himself would give us the righteousness that he requires. So I'm convicted by this. I'm encouraged by this. That they were willing to be shamed for the gospel. But they were in no way ashamed of it. So this morning I pray that we will find a great encouragement that, man, maybe there's going to be some opportunities even this week to not be ashamed, to not be afraid, to proclaim it boldly to those around us, to finally not be ashamed. Because Martin Luther had no idea how his life would be used for the kingdom of God. And I think often we forget how our lives can be used. If you'll pray with me. Father, this morning I am thankful and grateful for how you use people, sinful people. Lord, I pray that you would use us, that you would grant us the courage and the boldness that we would not be ashamed of the gospel, that we would live boldly in our families, where we work, where we go to school, where we find entertainment that, Lord, we would live boldly for the gospel because it is the only message in the world that has your power behind it to change lives for here and for all eternity. Lord, I thank you that you provided the solution to our greatest problem, the standard of righteousness. You are the only one that can provide it and you give it freely to all that will simply look upon your Son and believe. Lord, I ask this in his name, the truly righteous one, the one I pray you would send soon, Lord. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com.